Okay, so if you were not here last week, I have to give you a, a very quick recap uh, because where we're at, this is the book of Haggai uh, is maybe one that's not as familiar to you as, say, John or Matthew or Romans or one of those ones that, you know, gets a little more airtime on the radio these days. Uh, Haggai doesn't get a lot of playtime. And so, quick recap of where we were at last week. We introduced uh, Haggai, which is a book, it's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So Haggai was this man who was uh, called by God to speak God's word to the people of Israel. And at this point in Israel's history, the exiles had uh, just returned. So the nation of Israel, uh, particularly the the southern portion of it called Judah, had been uh, pulled away into exile by the Babylonian or by uh, yeah the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire took over and let them all go home. And so they were all sent home, and God gave them a specific task. And the task that God gave them was go back to Jerusalem and build a temple for me. Because the first temple that Solomon had built about 500 years earlier had been torn down by the Babylonians. And so God sends them back, and they all get home, and they start work on the temple. They begin the work, and they they lay a foundation. Uh, But then, if you read uh, the book of Ezra, you'll see that they face a little bit of opposition, and so they give up. They stop working on the temple, and instead they start focusing on themselves. And so in the first chapter of Haggai that we looked at last week, God gives a bit of a a rebuke or a criticism to the people, and he says, you are living in your wood-paneled houses while my house lies in ruins. And this is is a stern critique of of where they are at currently. And so this prophet goes and speaks to them on behalf of God and, and commands them, what you need to do now is build the temple, finish the temple. And as we saw in the second half of that chapter, the people respond positively. They listen to the prophet, and they obey him, and they, can, they begin work again on the temple. And so that brings us into chapter 2. And so chapter 2 has three parts. Uh, it's kind of a, a three-part breakdown that we can look at. It's going to be up on the screen, but uh, there are three portions in chapter 2 of the book of Haggai. Uh, because Haggai, the prophet, speaks to the people uh, three times or gives three words from God. So the first of those is in uh, the, the very beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 9. And in those verses, the prophet Haggai speaks to all the people. So he addresses all of them, kind of like I'm doing now. He speaks to all the people in Jerusalem at the time. So that's the first part that we're going to look at. And then the second part, uh, he addresses the priests. So these religious leaders, the people who uh, would primarily be overseeing the temple. Uh, They had built, or they were still in the process of building this temple, and this uh, prophet Haggai goes to the priests and gives them a message from God. And then finally, the last portion that we'll see, it's verses 19 to 23, the prophet Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel, who is the governor. And so we see three different messages from God to uh, Israel, or to Judah particularly, at this time. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at each one of these, and I'm not going to take too long, and we're going to get, I think, three key points that we're going to pull out of these uh, very important messages that God gives to the people. So we're going to begin at the beginning of Haggai chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to pull it out, but it is also up here on the screen. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, I'll read them, and then uh, we're going to look at them. It says this, in the seventh month, On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So, uh, if you think that one might have been a little bit confusing and overwhelming, wait till we get to the next one. But a uh, very important prophecy that Haggai speaks to the whole remnant of the people, it's called. So from the time that the Israelites return from their captivity or their exile in uh, Babylon, they are called the remnant. And so when, when he addresses them, he calls them the remnant of the people. And so our first point that we're going to look at this morning, it's going to be up on your screen, uh, and the, a thing that I think we can pull out of this passage that hopefully will encourage you, is that God doesn't waste the work of his people. God does not waste the work of his people. So we're going to see this kind of unfold as we move forward. So we're going to look at verse 3, because in verse 3, God asks the people a question, a very important question, and one that I think we should uh, understand why he's asking this, because if you just read it and you don't know the context, you might not understand why is Haggai asking this question. So in verse 3, Haggai says, "'Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory?' How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So this might sound a little bit discouraging because the people, they just got this, you know, Haggai came and he said, hey, what you need to do is rebuild the temple. And so now they're in the process of obeying God. They're doing exactly what God told them to do. They're doing the work that God has laid before them. And they're partway through this work and God says, hey, everybody pause. Look at what you've got so far. Like, look look at where we're at. Isn't this like nothing in your eyes? Isn't this, is, doesn't this appear to be basically worthless? That's a, I don't know. I, if you've ever worked on something hard and been building something and then someone else comes along and says, that doesn't look that great. That doesn't really encourage you to keep going. So why does God come? Why does God say this to the people? Why does, why does God say, does it, do any of you remember the former temple? And if you know the history of Israel, you know, as I said, Solomon, the son of King David, built the first temple. And that temple was glorious. It was magnificent. It had, you know, all the stuff that you could want in a temple, I guess. You know, I would encourage you to go read uh, Second Chronicles. There's a fantastic description of, of the temple and everything that goes on there. And God is basically saying, hey, how many of you remember that old temple? Because that was uh, when that temple had been destroyed just about 70 years earlier. And so some of them would have probably been alive still that had remembered that temple. And God asks them the question. He invites them to compare. 
And he says, hey, look, compare this new temple that you're working on to that old, glorious, magnificent temple. And of course, the result of this comparison when they compare their new temple to the old temple is, wow, this new temple really doesn't measure up. This new temple is not as good, not as magnificent, not as glorious as the old temple. And I think God wanted them to see this for for an important reason, and we're going to see that as we move forward. So verses 4 and 5, they go like this, yet now. So now, now that you've recognized the comparison between the old temple and the, the second temple, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you, or when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So God, in the midst of them all seeing, they all see, look, this new work that God has given me, the work that I'm doing now, doesn't even compare to what was done in the past. What I'm doing now doesn't seem glorious. What I'm doing now doesn't seem significant. In fact, it seems pretty insignificant. What I'm doing now, the work that God has given me, doesn't seem to measure up to some of the things that I see in the past. The work that God has given me doesn't seem to reach up to that same glory that perhaps some previous work does. But, but what does God say? He says, I am with you. Fear not. My spirit remains in your midst. And, and this, is, this is so important for us to understand. Because I think you and I can very often play the comparison game. And in some ways, I think God is uh, here. He calls them to compare. He says, look, compare what you're doing now to what was done in the past. But God wants us to know that the work that you're doing now, he won't waste it. He won't waste it. In fact, God gives us a promise, and God gave the, the nation of Israel a promise, this remnant of the people, this small group who had returned from exile. He gives them a promise. We're going to see it in verses six to nine, and this should encourage each one of us. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house, this this new house, this one that seems insignificant compared to the old house, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So God is giving this message to the people. And he's saying, even though the work that you're doing right now might seem insignificant, even though it might not seem like it's going to measure up to the work that you've seen done in the past, you can trust that God is going to use it. God is going to use the work that you're doing, and he promises this by giving them uh, this vision of the future. He says he's going to shake the nations. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the dry ground. He's going to shake the sea. And what we understand, if we understand the story of Scripture, is that this is a a forward-looking prophecy. So there are two types of prophecy in the Bible. One is uh, foretelling, and one is forthtelling. So foretelling is this sort, where you look forward to the future, and the prophet tells you this is what's going to happen 
in the future. Fourth telling is kind of like what uh, Haggai did in the first chapter, where he said, God commands you, build the temple. It's telling you God's will. This is what you need to do. But then foretelling is what he does here. And he says, hey, in the future, God is going to shake the nations. And he's going to do it through this place. He, he gives us this picture of uh, upheaval that leads to peace. I love the final verse in that section, verse 9. It says, and in this place, this temple that you are currently building that seems so insignificant to you, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. We might ask, well, how, how is that going to happen? What, how is it going to happen that this seemingly insignificant temple is going to be the place that God brings peace? Well, this is this temple. This very temple is where Jesus would come. And Jesus would preach, and Jesus would teach the people when Jesus was an infant. This is the temple where he was presented and consecrated before God. This is the temple where Jesus went and he flipped tables because they were not honoring it as the Lord's house, which you see so often even here in the book of Haggai, it's referred to as the Lord's house. And so here in the book of Haggai, 500 years before Jesus would come, we get this prophecy that here in this place, because in part because of the work that you're doing, faithfully obeying my command, even though it seems insignificant, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth through it. And this is uh, something that you and I might need encouragement in, because I think so often when we see the work of God that God has placed before us, it seems insignificant. It seems like, well, how is God going to use if I, if I have this conversation with this person? You know, it probably will amount to nothing. Or how is God going to use it if I serve you know, in the children's ministry, if I serve coffee, or if I, I'm on the ushers team? How is God going to use that? That might seem insignificant. But what we see, the dynamic that is laid forth for us in this passage is that God will never waste the obedience of his people. When his people obey him and do what he calls them to do, it will never be wasted. And in fact, it will all work into this plan that God is going to bring glory. God is going to bring, he's going to shake the heavens. He's going to change all of creation. And you and I, even in our tiny little insignificant acts of obedience, get to be a part of the plan that God is working in this world. And so be encouraged. When, when your obedience, when your work seems insignificant, remember that God does not waste the work of his people. So now we move on to the second word that God gives through the prophet Haggai, verses 10 to 19. On the 24th day, so something to note that's kind of cool about the book of Haggai that's actually pretty rare for a lot of the prophetic books, is how specifically he, he dates his writings, so you see uh, in that first one that we just read at the beginning of the chapter, in the seventh month on the 21st day, so July 21st was when that last prophecy happened. And then this one happens on the 24th day of the ninth month, so September 24th. Cool. It's just kind of a, a cool little fact that most of the other prophet, prophetic books don't include that. So on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries, this is where it's going to get confusing, I promise I'll explain. Ask the priests, priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. 
Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with, the, with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, Consider, from this day forward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to, uh, to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you, I struck you and all the products of, and <laughs> of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since, that, or since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple has, was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So, if you're anything like me, the first hearing that beginning portion about the, the meat in the fold and the unclean, clean foods, a little bit confusing. Uh, we will work through that, but uh, point number two this morning, it's going to be up on the screen, is God blesses his people as they do his will, but rejects convenience-based obedience. So, in verses 12 and 13, we get an illustration. Uh, and the illustration is that, that kind of confusing stuff that we see at the beginning there in verses 12 and 13. Uh, the prophet says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garments and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. So let's pause right there. The prophet Haggai is, is pointing them to something that they would have all been very familiar with, especially as priests. Uh, at that time, you would come and you would bring offerings to uh, the temple. And offerings could be clean and they could not be unclean. And if you tried to offer an unclean offering, it would not be accepted. And so Haggai asks this question. He says, if you've got a clean offering, the offering is good, it's clean, it's ready to be offered. If you go touch that clean offering to something that's unclean, does it make the unclean thing clean? And of course, the, the prophets answer, no, that, that's not how it works. And so then he flips it. And he says, all right, so then uh, if somebody is unclean already themselves by touching a dead body, which ceremonially in the nation of Israel, according to the law of Moses, if you had touched a dead body, you were unclean until you had gone through ritual washing. And so if somebody is unclean because they touched a dead body, and then they come over and you've got something clean, and they touch that clean thing, does that thing then become unclean? And the answer is yes. And the, the, the illustration that God is giving through these questions uh, by the prophet Haggai is this idea that cleanness, the cleanness that God requires in order to enter the temple and make sacrifice, that sort of cleanness does not spread by contact. It doesn't spread just by one clean thing touching another clean thing, but uncleanness does spread by contact. And, and when when something clean touches something that is unclean, then that clean thing then becomes unclean. It's kind of like if you uh, grew up in, and went to elementary school and all of that, uh, girls have cooties. And if you touch girls, you get cooties. 
That's how it works. And, and so then, say, say uh, one of your friends comes over and touches you, that doesn't take the cooties off. The cooties are still there. This is, the, this is basically uh, a very elementary way of describing kind of what the prophet is describing. This idea that uh, cleanness isn't really contagious, but uncleanness is contagious. And then he gives us an application that we see in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, Then Haggai answered, So it is with this people. So he's saying, This people is unclean. Uh, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer here is unclean. So here's the thing here, and here is what God is pointing out uh, to the people. He's pointing out, because all the way through this time, as we mentioned last week, from the time that they returned, uh, the, the, the king of Persia sent them back and said, go build your temple, God himself sends you to build this temple, to now, there was a 20-year gap when they should have been already finished with the temple, but instead they just got started on it and then didn't finish it. But what was odd what was very weird was that throughout all that time, that 20 years, 23-ish years, they were still offering sacrifices to God. So they were coming to the temple, with the, the foundations of the temple, the unfinished temple, and they were standing before God and offering Him sacrifices. And God was saying, look, up until now, when you've been disobeying me, up until now, when you've not been doing what I told you to do, all your sacrifices were unclean and worthless. This is, this is what God is saying. He, he's teaching them. Look, you can do all the, all the uh, convenient obedience, but if you disobey in all the areas where it's, it's uh, inconvenient, then that obedience over there really doesn't help. So, so they were neglecting for 20 plus years to build the temple, but then they were trying to do the convenient portions of obedience. They knew, well, God does want us to make sacrifices, so we'll keep doing that, even though we're not going to do the primary thing that he commands us to do, which is to rebuild his temple. They had embraced this idea of, of convenient religion, and I, I fear that that is uh, just as prevalent today as it was in that time. Uh, even in Jesus' day, 500 years later, he, he makes a, a very similar accusation to the Pharisees, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he's speaking to them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what is, what is Jesus' critique? He's saying you're doing the parts that are easy, you're doing the parts that don't really require any, any inconvenience. You're doing the parts that are basically uh, relatively easy for you to accomplish. But you're neglecting the parts that are the most important. And this is, this is the uh, critique that I think God is giving to the people here in the book of Haggai. He's saying, look, your sacrifices over here, your, your sacrifices are worthless if you have not chosen to follow me in spirit and in truth. All this, all this stuff over here doesn't mean anything if you neglect to do the primary thing that I've called you to do. So, in light of, it sounds like bad news, but this is actually God delivering good news. Because he's saying, look, now that you have chosen obedience, now that you've chosen to continue rebuilding the temple, 
here's some good news. So God goes on in verses 15 to 19. Now then, consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you uh, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So God is saying, look, the reason you have not been blessed in these last 20 years is because while doing the easy parts of religion, you've neglected the most important part. But now from this day forward, we see, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. So that that points us again back to, to point two. God blesses his people as they do his will, but rejects convenience-based obedience. See, I, I think it, it's very easy for us to slip into kind of bare minimum Christianity. The sort of Christianity that says, well, what, what's the minimum I can do <laughs> to, to honor God with my life? What, what, what's the minimum bar that I can reach in order to uh, please God. And I think what God wants us to understand that that is not a mindset in itself that honors Him. That, that mindset in itself proves, in, in, in a lot of ways, that your life has not been surrendered to Him. And this is what the Israelites were guilty of, and this is what I, I want us to not be guilty of. And it's not something that's like, oh, well, that's where you're at right now, so the story's over, turns out you're not a Christian. This is just a gentle, hopefully uh, loving reminder that it's so easy for us just subconsciously to, to slip back into, let's just do the minimum. Let's just get by. Let's just do the bare amount that I can do in order to supposedly honor God. But what God wants is wholehearted obedience. What he wants is, is wholehearted passion for his will and for his work. And so he says to the, to the Israelites, from this day forward, since you have renewed your obedience, you have renewed your passion to do what I've called you to do, you will experience blessing. And that's what I want for our church. And I don't think here God's talking about, you know, it's very easy, you turn on uh, some, some TV preachers and you think, oh, that means I'll get rich if I do what God says. Not what God's saying. I think the, it's so clear if you, if you read the New Testament, you read the, the words of Jesus, he in fact promises that in a lot of ways, life will be difficult for his people. So God here is not promising the sort of blessing that means your bank account gets bigger, your house gets bigger, you get two more boats and another car for, for doing what he says. But instead, it, it's the spiritual blessing that comes from loving and obeying your heavenly Father. This is what uh, we, we get held before us as, look, it's so worth it to do what God says because look at the blessing that comes from, from having relationship with our Father. So, that then brings us to the final prophecy in the book of Haggai, uh, and it's, God, it's a prophecy to the governor. So, we'll read verses uh, 20 to 23. The word, of Haggai, uh, or the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. Uh, 
and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, uh, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So again, we, we get some familiar language actually from uh, two prophecies ago about God shaking the nations, about God bringing upheaval. So we see this in verses 21 and 22, that is all described, that God is going to shake the nations, that brother will fight brother, that there will be unrest. And this is, this is again, this sort of foretelling prophecy, telling what's going to happen in the future. And God is, is telling Haggai and telling Zerubbabel through Haggai, there is going to be peace. There is going to be peace. In fact, what do we, we talk about so much at, at Christmas time? We'll get to there in like a month. That peace to all men. This is good news. But what we understand about God's plan is that peace comes through upheaval. That peace that God is going to bring comes through, in a lot of ways, unrest. And that unrest is the unrest that is brought by Jesus himself. Jesus is going to come, and and Jesus himself says, I have come to set brother against brother. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Because before the peace can come, Jesus has to come and bring unrest. And it is the unrest where Jesus arrives and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That statement that Jesus makes, and that's not the only one, creates a dividing line through all of humanity. Creates a line where one side says, amen. You are my king. You are my Lord. And I'm going to live this life for you. But the other side of the line says, I reject you. I don't accept your kingship. I don't accept your lordship. You are not the way. I'm going to go a different way. And when Jesus came, he brought that upheaval. The conflict that will take place until the day he returns because part of humanity says yes and part of humanity says no. And I love as we go on the the final verse, verse 23, God God seals all of this with uh, a phrase that he tells to Zerubbabel. I'll read verse 23 again specifically. It says, On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, the governor, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Today, we don't really have signet rings anymore. I don't have one. I would imagine most of you don't have one. And we might not be super familiar with the purpose of a signet ring. But a signet ring was a ring that a king would wear, and it would have uh, basically a logo embossed on it. And when he wanted to stamp his seal of approval or his seal of authority onto something, it would stamp it in where they would have a bit of wax and it would be stamped. And, and that would be a sign of the authority of the king. That if something had the signet ring's stamp of approval, the seal on it, then that thing had the king's own authority. And, and what does God say? He says to Zerubbabel, look, Zerubbabel, you are going to be like a signet ring. So he's saying, I am placing on you the authority. You are going to be a symbol of my royal authority in this world. And this is very, very important because if you know the history of Israel, you know that way back in the day around the year 1000 BC, David becomes king. 
And God makes David a promise. The promise is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God promises David, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So if you know that, that God made that promise, and then you know that there's an exile about 500 years later, where the whole nation of Israel is sent away into a foreign land, you might ask the question, uh, God, it seems like the throne is not sure forever. Seems like, in fact, the throne has failed. It seems like the line of David has ended because now they are slaves, basically, in a foreign land. But God, as we saw uh, last week when we talked about the proclamation of Cyrus, God moved empires so that the people of Israel could return home. And then here in this scene, God makes sure that we all know that his promise hasn't failed that his promise to David has not failed, and in fact, it's going to be continued through Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel now is this king in the line of David, and in fact, if you read the, uh, the genealogy of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew, you go back far enough, it's like Jesus' great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandpa, Zerubbabel's in the list, because God wanted to make sure everyone knew that his promise hasn't failed, and one day there will come a king, there will come a king who will sit on the throne of David forever. And of course, that's a reference to Jesus. And so Zerubbabel is this symbol that God's promises do not fail. Jesus is on the throne. And so I, I skipped over it, but our third point is God graciously includes people, people like you and me, in his perfect plan. And by perfect, I don't just mean it's really good. I mean that it, it cannot fail. God's plan is so good that we never have to worry about, will what God has told me come to pass? It's all going to happen, and we can trust. We can trust the fact that Jesus is on the throne. The throne of David has been established, secure forever, and Jesus himself sits on it. And so we can trust that. So that is it for this morning. I'm going to pray. And we will also have some people up front that would love to pray with you if you would need any prayer this morning. Uh, but let's pray together, and I hope that uh, we all go out of here trusting in the faithfulness of God and His Word. God, thank you so much for uh, this short book of Haggai. Thank you so much that, that you reveal to us that when we turn to you and, and do what you call us to do, we get to walk in the blessing that, that is so wonderful, that it's worth giving up anything else in order to walk alongside you. I pray that we would trust in your word entirely, and that we would submit our lives to King Jesus, who even now sits on the throne of David. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. You can get prayer up here. Have a great weekend, or rest of a weekend. Thanks.